in a series on 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter that was written by the Apostle Peter uh, from Rome to the church in the diaspora. He's writing to five different Roman provinces, Asia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. The church is suffering. The occasion that gave birth to this letter, the situation that gave rise to Peter's desire to write this letter, was suffering. And it's not just these five Roman provinces and the churches that existed in them that were suffering, but it was the church universal holistically, Peter says in chapter 5. The suffering? Next offenders. Oh, yeah, that's right. Next offenders. I'm already off to the races here. Next offenders, if you are in the room with us, it's your time to exit so that you can go be with Amy as she teaches you and equips you. Alright, so let me collect my thoughts here. The church's suffering is what gave rise to Peter's uh, desire to write this letter. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes a letter of encouragement to what would be the church universal at that point for him, his audience, in these five different Roman provinces. We're studying this letter. We're moving verse by verse through it. We've been in it. This is week number 17. And we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. Today we're going to deal with verse 8 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to open them. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. If you don't have your Bibles, the text will be on the screen. Uh, for those of you who are new here, we're glad that you're here. Look, we do an interactive type sermon study here. So you're going to hear people being asked to read. They're going to stand up. They're going to read. You might hear people raise their hand and ask a question. Just get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Our goal is to be like the church in the first century, not like the church in modern Western America. Not that the church in America is doing anything wrong, but we have a desire to do something different here. And so we're going to try to be obedient to God who has put that very desire in us. Before we read, actually, why don't we stop so that I can pray? I don't want to do this uh, in my own strength. Father, thank you for the fact that you have brought each and every one of us here today. Everyone here who is in the room, God, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be submitted to the work that the Spirit is going to do today as we unpack the Word. God, we pray that we would look to the text and that we would see it as authoritative in our lives. That which can prune the evil so that the good and the righteous can thrive. Lord, we have no hope apart from you. And so we're asking for your blessing as we open the text this morning. We pray that our efforts together would produce good fruit from good trees, that we would leave here transformed, and that today would be the birth of a conversation that would be ongoing for years to come. So God, we submit once again our hearts and our minds to you, asking that you would have your way in us and through us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. Peter begins in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good old days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As we read this section of the text, we can see that the Apostle Peter signals the concluding section of his household code with the term finally. The very first word in verse 8, finally. This is a signal to us that Peter is bringing this section of the text to its close, not the letter. Now what began weeks ago for us in chapter 2, verse 13, will come to a close in this morning's study as we begin to unpack chapter 3, verse 8 through 12, the portion that we just read. Now as you can see, Peter will close out this section in the text in the same way that he started. His household code began with instructions for everyone. It will finish with instructions for everyone. We would say here in this church that this is Peter offering the body healthy doctrine. New Testament scholar Alan Stibbs writes that modern students, that's you and me, we're the modern students, that we should understand the singular term finally with the phrase to sum it all up. So when we see the term finally, it signals to us, the modern reader, that Peter is beginning a summary statement on the entirety of his household code. And in this summary statement, the Apostle Peter will arrange five different adjectives with brotherly love at the center. We can see that here. We're going to be discussing unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These character traits should be intrinsic to a healthy Christian community in regard to their faith and practice. These are non-negotiables for those of us who claim to be in Christ. Now Peter Davids observes that the first and fifth terms address how one thinks. So unity of mind and a humble mind, they address the logical part of the brain, the rational part of the brain. Well, the second and fourth terms address how we feel. These deal with the seed of our emotion and how we respond more or uh, less than how we think in regard to the other terms. And brotherly love is at the center of all of it. It is the core. I'd like to make one last observation before we begin to dig in this morning. And that is that most scholars seem to agree that verse 8 is addressing relationships within the church. So this would be brother to brother, sister to sister, brother to sister, sister to brother relationships. While verse 9 seems to be dealing with the church's relationship to the outsider, i.e. the unbeliever, and how they interact with the church and how we respond to them in our interactions. Remember, Peter says, be prepared to give an answer when you're asked. Strategically, he's not saying just go out there like a bull in a china shop and just lay waste. He's saying wait for God to give you the opportunity and when the door is open, step through it. There's no need to kick it open. God's going to give you the opportunity. In verse 10 and 12, Peter is going to cite a large portion from the Psalter. He's going to be borrowing from Psalm 34. And what he borrows from Psalm 34 is taken from the LXX. This is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. 
Now, Peter is orally dictating this letter, most likely, and uh, um, Sylvanus is probably writing it down while John Mark is in the room. So as he's orally recalling the words of Psalm 34, there are some textual variants. If you look closely at the original manuscripts, you're going to be like, well, this isn't a direct citation. Well, homeboy didn't have Logos then. <laughs> he didn't have Bible Gateway. He couldn't copy and paste. And he most likely didn't have the time to go to the local synagogue to get the, the scroll. So he's doing this from memory. So it makes sense that there may be minor alterations from him orating the text from what the scribes wrote long ago. <laughs> now having outlined this entire section that we're going to study this morning, it's my hope that we're feeling ready to tackle these verses. Are you guys ready? Yeah. You guys ready to close out the household code section this morning? Yeah. All right, then. I need you guys to read this out loud for me, please. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Man, that was like the best reading that this church has ever done. That was awesome. Let me give you guys a round of applause. Sometimes I'm like, I need you guys to read this out loud. And it just takes a moment to get everybody going. But you guys are on it this morning. That's exciting. That excites me. We're here. We're here. Now, when we read this portion of the text, it's as if we can hear Peter say, as I begin to bring this section of the letter to a close, I'm going to need everybody to pay close attention. Peter's heart. It doesn't matter if you're in Pontus in a house church, if you're in Galatia in a house church, if you're in Asia, Bithynia, or Cappadocia. He doesn't care. If you're listening to the letter that he wrote being read in one of the churches in Christ Jesus in these five Roman provinces, the heart of Peter is that you would slow down Lean in and focus. If that's Peter's desire for his original audience, that's my desire for us today. Okay? So let's slow down, forget about what's going on in our lives outside of here. Let's lean in and let's focus on what Peter has to say to us today. The qualities which Peter is about to mention, these qualities are vital. They're not optional. They're not negotiable for the Christian life. They are required. Absolutely, 100%, Peter's not like, do this if you feel like it. <clears throat> he says, have this, have this, have that too. And while you're at it, take some of that. He's not asking, he's instructing. This is doctrine. These things are as important for us today as they were for them then. They must be embraced and implemented, both individually and corporately, for the glory of God and for the health of the local congregation. The first thing Peter says is that we are to be united. <laughs> Have unity of mind. Be united, church. Yeah. <sighs> and then I think about the current state of the body of Christ. Do we take the writings of the Apostle? This is a good question that only we can answer on our behalf. No one can answer this for you. How seriously do you take what Peter says? Have unity of mind, he writes. The first thing we have to do 
is asked, what did Peter mean when he wrote Unity of the Mind, and what did his audience understand? We don't care about some modern interpretation and application. We are after what Peter said, what he meant, and how his audience understood it. Once we have that, then we can worry about a modern understanding and interpretation. But if we can't get these two things right, we definitely aren't going to get a modern understanding right. So the first thing we're doing is asking, what did Peter mean when he wrote out unity of mind? Now before we attempt to give an answer, I want everybody to ask themselves, do I, do we, do we naturally gravitate toward unity or division? Am I, are we bent on solidarity and cohesion or dissension and discord? And I'm talking about our relationships with the church here. Let's do a thought exercise. Close your eyes. Everybody's at home, in their bedroom or living room, and they're alone. No distractions. Your wife, your husband, they're not there. The kids aren't making any noise. It's just you and your smart device. And you're scrolling through your newsfeed. And somehow the algorithm has worked it out so only your Christian brothers and sisters and the things they're posting are popping up in your feed. You're reading the comments that are made on the things that they're asserting. Do we gravitate toward unity? Or do we gravitate toward discord as we read the words of our brothers and sisters? Go ahead and open your eyes. Only you know the answer to the question. How do you feel when you read the things that are written by those who claim to be a part of the body of Christ? Are we at one with one another? As Jesus prayed, Father, I pray that you would make them one as you and I are one. Or do we read things and go, that person is whack. I can't believe that Christian thinks this way. If they could only be as smart as me, then everything would be okay. <laughs> is that how we think? I mean, how do we gravitate, church? What's our initial response when we see these things on Facebook and YouTube, when we read about the things that are going on in the church? Are we having unity of mind? Mm. The bride is not supposed to be perfect. The bride needs its Savior. The bride is supposed to be sanctified. And God does that through experience. So while he's sanctifying us, do we gravitate toward unity? Or do we think that God's working in us and we just wish he would be working in everybody else? Right. That's the question. So we're asking ourselves, what does Paul mean, or sorry, what does Peter mean when he writes, have unity of mind? If we're going to be honest with ourselves and with one another, we can immediately begin to see the fundamental requirement for this call to harmony, for this admonition to unity. Peter understood that it would be necessary in his day, just as much as we understand it's essential in ours. Written to them, for us. The Bible is still authoritative. Now, unity does not require uniformity. No, absolutely. The church needs to hear this. Unity does not require uniformity. Being of the same mind is not predicated on simple agreement with others. Let me give you some examples of this. Some practical examples. We'll start with the micro and we'll work to the macro, okay? My eschatology, D, 
differs from breakdown of eschatology. Brent's eschatology and my eschatology differs from Art's eschatology. My soteriology differs from Josh Nelson's soteriology. But here's the deal. Brent and Art and I can show up Sunday after Sunday and we can fellowship under the headship of Christ. Josh Nelson can support this body financially all the way from Pennsylvania even though we differ in our soteriology because he knows that the gospel is going out from this pulpit with integrity, with authenticity, and with zeal. Can you explain those terms? Eschatology? So eschatology would be our view of the end of days. That's where Brent and I are different. Josh Nelson, in my view of soteriology, it's the order of how God saves us, the steps that are taken so that we can be saved. Josh has a different view of soteriology than I have. Okay, that's a good question, Art. Thank you. We're bringing clarity to the terms that might not be understood by everyone in the room. So that's a micro. Let's go a step further. Does the doctrine and theology of AC squared at every single touch point line up with that of the doctrine and theology with those who lead and pastor Refuge City Church or Response Church? The answer is absolutely not. It just doesn't. But we strive time and time again to gather and to put on and to host corporate worship events. Why do we do this? Because we want the greater body in Anchorage to be united. We want the greater body in Anchorage to know who is the blood-bought brother and sister in the Lord. We want the greater body in Anchorage to be praying for one another. Even better, we want the greater body in Anchorage to come together and in unity of mind extol the name of Jesus through praise and worship and song. Amen. That's why we do it. Let's go a step further. Does the doctrine and theology of AC squared line up at every touch point with ABT, Anchorage Baptist Temple? No, it does not. However, they saw fit to support this church when it needed to get planted, and they put us in a building that they own, and they continue to help us grow as we preach the Word of God. Amen. That's unity of mind. Yeah. Let's go a step further. What about political, social, and economic differences? Do you think Pastor Overlander and Pastor Hoffman, Dr. Jeff Anderson and Dr. Mark Goodman, Pastor Austin Adams and Pastor Gabriel Webb, do you think we all agree on how we should tackle the social, political, and economic issues that our city, state, and nation is facing? No! We don't! However, we know how to love one another in the midst of our differences. Because we operate from a position of submission to Christ. We know how not to major on the minors, church. We know how not to major on the minors. Our unity is founded on a common Lord, a common confession, and a common goal to see the kingdom of God established Amen. as we witness to the world with a common message, Amen. the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. Yes. Now, saints, we must never forget that unity does not require uniformity. Now, if you're struggling with this concept, I want you to consider the concept of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, they are distinct in nature yet they are one. Right. Diversity is strength, not weakness. Right. How do we do, church, when it comes to unity of mind? Unity of mind. It's a hard question. 
I know how I react, and I know how I would like to respond. Oh. And they're two different things. Absolutely. So having dealt with unity of mind, the Apostle Peter addresses next the idea of sympathy. Sympathy describes an understanding disposition or the ability to put oneself in another place. Alex and I have talked at great length about how this is difficult for us. <laughs> Sympathetic creatures, not so much. Is that bad for a pastor? It could be. If I refuse to see that I need to change and then ask God to change me and you ask God to change me. Are you guys there? Have you arrived? Well, your pastor hasn't either. God still has work to do in each of us. Yeah. And he's doing it in us and through us. Yeah. I need you as much as you need me and we all are dependent on God. Yeah. Sympathy. An understanding disposition or the ability to put oneself in another place, in another's place. How do we do church when it comes to suffering together? Suffering together. Are we like Job's friends in their moment of silence? Or are we more like Job's friends in their moment of worthless rhetoric? Does the body of Christ, do we have responsive feelings when it comes to the experiences of those who suffer for the name of Jesus. Do we have responsive feelings? I mean, we watch the news in America, we scroll our feeds, and we don't even put our fork down when we're eating breakfast when stories like this are crossing the screen. Absolutely. Does this kind of stuff elicit a response in us? As modern-day Americans, we have become desensitized to reports of violence. School shootings, drivers weaponizing their vehicles as they speed through crowds of people, thousands if not millions of people who are displaced as refugees. Russia is at war with Ukraine. Death and suffering seem to dominate the headlines while we so easily tend to forget that each broken body is somehow connected to a broken heart. Yep. A father of a son or a daughter. Yep. A son or a daughter of a father and a mother. A grandparent or a grandchild. Each broken body is connected to a broken heart. The surge of media in the modern age has made it so easy for us to be satisfied with a sort of sentimentalism which feels only for a moment and responds by doing nothing. Welcome to life in America. That's our game. We can't argue against it. I'm guilty. When we hear things like this and we're driving, do we pull over on the road to pray? Or do we, no, I'm on a schedule here. i got somewhere to be. Do we suffer well with the greater body? William Barclay says this, and it's very conflicting for me. He notes that sympathy and selfishness cannot coexist, which means that I'm a selfish person. Because I lack sympathy. He says, so long as there is the self, and it is the most important thing in the world, there can be no such thing as sympathy. Sympathy depends on the willingness to forget oneself and to identify with the pains and sorrows of others. Church, are we able to do this? 
And if we're able to do this, do we do this well? Or do we suck at this? That's what the question is. Peter says that this, uh, that the unity of mind and sympathy, that these things are vital to the faith and practice of both the local and the church universal. Vital. Following unity of mind and sympathy, Peter mentions brotherly love. This is at the core of everything that he's talking about. Goes back to chapter 1. You can look, let everything that you do spring forth from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly, pure as brothers. Peter grounds brotherly love. It's like the linchpin of what he's saying. You know, without this, we don't know what we would do with the other four. It's a central attribute in the list, which appears in verse 8. And it's my opinion that at this point, we should simply let the text speak. So I'm going to need some folks to volunteer to read. I need somebody to look up Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 40. Who wants to do that? James, Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 40. I need someone else to look up John chapter 13. Verse 34 and 35. Who's going to do that one? Isaac in the back is doing John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. I need someone to do 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Art, you want to do that one? Ethan, you can do the last one. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 through 20. Listen to what it is that the text is going to say and hold the idea of brotherly love in the back of your mind. We're going to begin with Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 40. James, you got it? I do. Go ahead and stand up and then read it loud and proud. All right, he says, Teacher, which, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, having all the law and the prophets. Okay, so we're thinking about brotherly love. Thank you, James. And Jesus answers, a scribe or a Pharisee or a lawyer, depending on the text, the translation that you're reading, and he tells him that love, love for God and love for people are the most important things. You think Peter's serious about brotherly love? It sounds like Jesus is serious about brotherly love. Love God, love people. On this, the entirety of the Torah, the wisdom, and the prophets hang. Who's got uh, John 13, 34 through 35? Is that Isaac? Go for it, bro. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You guys hear the repetition of love one another, love one another, love one another in there? Yeah. We're talking about a small passage of scripture. And it says, love one another, love one another, love one another. And Jesus says, by this love that you're displaying horizontally, you're going to be identified as my disciple, as my apprentice. Apart from the love that you display horizontally toward humanity, people will not be able to tell that you love me. Now, if you question my interpretation, let's just keep reading the text. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 through 15. Go ahead, Art. I'll 
read 13 also. So do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. The person who does not love remains spiritually dead. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life present in him. Oh, you are spiritually dead if you don't have love. Think about the church and the letter of the revelation of Jesus Christ who had his lampstand removed. Why did Ephesus have their lampstand removed? Lost their first love. They lost their first love. Love God. Love people. Go ahead. Go ahead. First uh, John four nineteen and twenty. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, not, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. There you go. If you cannot display love horizontally, your claim to love God vertically, it's moot. It's moot. John says it. You can't love the one you haven't seen if you can't love the ones that you do see. And Peter says something similar in chapter 1 when he says, We know that you love God, yet you haven't seen Him. This idea of brotherly love, this idea of unity and sympathy, they are grounded in both the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. We cannot escape it. On the topic of brotherly love, the New Testament speaks very clearly and directly, as we just heard. It's almost frightening. Love of God and love of man go hand in hand. One cannot exist without the other. We said it last week. Our relationships with God can never be right if our relationships with each other are wrong. It is only when we are at one with each other that we can be one with God. If you have ought with your brother, don't go to God. Stop where you're at. Stop what you're doing. This is go find your brother, make things right, and then come back. That's what it says. These are the words of the master. We can't escape it. I said it's almost frightening because John says perfect love. It what? Cast out all fear. Amen. So it's almost frightening. Praise God, it's not. Love of God and love of man go hand in hand. Sounds like unity to me. Next, Peter addresses the necessity of a tender heart. Some translations read kind-hearted or compassionate. Now, I was not a Christian growing up as a kid. I've been a Christian for about a decade. A little longer now. And my mom used to tell me and my brothers all the time, be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Ah, shut up, mom! Don't preach that stuff to me. I don't believe it. When he makes me mad, I'm going to give it to him. She would be like, no, man. Tender heart. Compassion. Turns out I was wrong. She was right. Here we are. Now this term, amen, right? God is good. He is patient with idiots like me. Now this term... Kind-hearted, compassionate, tender-hearted, it conveys a deep, intense feeling of emotion. 
Something so intense it's felt in the core of your being. Now, the ancient Near Easterns and the first century philosophers would have talked about this as the, as the, uh, as, as the seat of emotion. They didn't know that our neurons were firing in our brain and moving through our body. They, they thought that it was here. And there is a reason, because everything is felt right here. Absolutely. When I'm angry, my stomach can hurt. When I'm brokenhearted, my, my heart can sink. So this is the seat of emotions. The Greek term is splenkna, and the, the, the word that Peter uses is a, is a, div, it's a, di, div, a derivative. derivative of that word. I can't say it, so I'm not even going to try. It's a, for those of you who are interested in doing word studies, it is a hypoxalagama. That means it is used only one time in the New Testament. Which means that, well actually, no, this one is not. This one is used two times, and the other four, I think, are used one time. Which means that we have to look outside of the Bible at other Greek, Greco-Roman writings to see how they define it, and then draw that from the culture and say, okay, this is what that word means, because it's only used once or twice in the text. Peter's using unique words here in this portion of the scripture. Now, this term conveys deep, intense feeling of emotion. Now, the text offers us good examples of what this looks like on a practical level via the narratives in the Gospels. I want you guys to think about the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan took pity on the man who had been beaten and robbed to the degree that he stopped what he was doing, he bandaged his wounds, he put him on his donkey, he took him to an inn, and he paid up front for any cost that may be incurred while the innkeeper took care of his needs. And then he promised that if the, the, the funds given didn't cover the cost, he would return and pay whatever was owed. That's compassion. That's being tender-hearted. Not loving the ones that you know, or no, loving the ones you know love you, but loving the stranger. By the way, it's a Samaritan in the text, and Jesus is speaking to Jews. You do the math. Not an example that they would be pleased with. Now, what about the father of the prodigal? In an honor-shame culture, which is what dominates the East to this day, the father had been shamed by the younger brother. What did the father do? Every day he went out to the wall. Every day he prayed that his son would return. And when he saw his son coming back, he had compassion on him. And the thing that he felt in the seat of his emotions was so intense that he couldn't stand there and wait. And he wasn't going to wait for him to come. He was going to shame himself by lifting his cloak and running a dishonorable act in the first century for a man. And he was going to go to his son and embrace him and kiss him because he was driven by compassion. Something that causes a response in us. This probably comes to its greatest illustration in Christ when the leper in Mark chapter 1 says, If you're willing, I know that you can heal me. And Jesus says, I will. And he reaches out and touches the marginalized in his society and he heals him. And he delivers him from his suffering. Why? Because he had compassion on the one he saw suffering. Floyd Valentine notes that a tender heart is reflective of the nature of God. And therefore it must be reflected in our lives as well. A 
This is a tall order, church. A tall order. How are we doing? What's our report card looking like? Finally, Peter states that we must exercise humility in our relationships with one another. As followers of Christ, we are to implement and exercise a humble mindset. This is like Christianity 101. Be humble. Interestingly enough, humility was scorned in the Greco-Roman world. In the first century, to be humble was not considered virtuous, given the primacy of self-sufficiency. Things then are not very different in certain areas as they are today. Humility is not looked on today as a virtue. We're in the middle of Pride Month, if you didn't know that. We're in the middle of the antithesis of humility. Celebrate self. And what you declare as if you are the final say. It's tough. It's tough. One commentator notes that humility seems to correspond with reality regardless of what the culture may say. In reality, we are weak. In reality, we are dependent, finite creatures with bodies that move closer to death with each passing day. Humility acknowledges a sense of creatureliness. It embraces the idea that we are forever dependent on someone greater than ourselves. This can actually be demonstrated in the physical from the time we are gestating in the womb to the time we're put in the ground. We are always physically dependent on someone greater than us. Yeah. Think about where your food comes from. Think about who maintains your utilities when you turn your water on, your lights on in the house. We are forever dependent on those who are greater than us. We are not self-sufficient creatures. Now this transcends physical reality, and it is a spiritual reality as well. We, in the Christian life, would say that we are forever dependent on God, who gives life and breath. Humility acknowledges a sense of creatureliness. Daryl Charles captures this idea of humility in a very beautiful way. He writes, humility that acknowledges and appropriates grace is a humility that refuses to humiliate. I love that. He says, rather, it is buoyed by gratitude and results in attitudes and actions which are active and not passive. So true humility that is buoyed with gratitude is active and not passive. Now I love this because it seamlessly, it seamlessly matches our definition of submission. What is submission in the context of 1 Peter? Submission is responsibly occupying your role or your function in society without compromising your position in Christ. That's what submission is. To do that, to responsibly occupy your role in society, you have to be actively engaging the society. You cannot disengage or isolate. You have to press in. It matches seamlessly with this definition of humility. Active humility, active submission. It is seamless. I absolutely love it. Listen up. I hope we're leaning in and we're paying attention because we said it at the outset of the study this morning. These qualities are vital. They're necessary. They're not optional, church. Each of these virtues helps the individual to strengthen the greater community. And to strengthen the greater community is, in essence, taking steps towards unity. We must remember that when the Christian community is united, it is better equipped to endure opposition. Our opposition today may be much 
smaller on a scale than the opposition in the first century. But we experience opposition nonetheless. And you know what happens? It's easier to conquer the church when we're divided. Which is why we need to be united in mind. Which is why we need to be sympathetic to one another. Which is why we need to exercise brotherly love. Which is why we need to be tender-hearted. And which is why we need to be humble in mind. Period. Non-negotiable. We are better equipped to endure opposition when we are united. Can you guys read this next slide out loud for me, please? Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this is your call, that you may obtain blessing. Moving on from the category of internal relationships with the church, Peter's done speaking to how the church should engage one another. He now shifts his focus to how we are to interact with those who do not believe. Church, we are to be active, not passive. Peter writes, don't do this. On the contrary, do this. Peter's very good at setting up clear compare and contrasts. If we read the letter, he does it over and over and over again. Now here he places a normative example of reacting in juxtaposition to how the Christian should respond to the believer. Here it is again. Do we react or do we respond? Reacting takes no thought. Responding takes pause, thought, and then action. Do we react or do we respond? Peter says, don't do this. And this is the natural thing for you. Trust me, I'm the guy who tried to cut off Malchus's ear. Yes, absolutely. Don't do this. Trust me, I know. I'm the guy who denied Christ three times. Don't do this. I'm the guy who caused division in Paul's churches that you hear about in Galatia. Don't do this, but on the contrary, do this. Yeah. If anybody's qualified to give advice, it's Peter. Now I want to be absolutely clear that the text is simply demanding that we follow in the footsteps of the Messiah. He says, for to this you were called. Which means that Peter is not asking the church to do anything that Jesus himself has not already done. He taught, he exemplified this type of ministry in his lifestyle throughout his time on earth. Now I'm going to need some more volunteers to read. How about we get some ladies involved this time? Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 28. Anybody want to read it? Luke. There you go, Stephanie. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 28. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. Who wants to do it? Kendall. First Peter 2, 21 through 23. Luke 23. This is the last one. I need a good reader for this. Actually, I'm going to volunteer somebody to do this one. <laughs> I'll get her next time she's here. <laughs> Where's Tom? Tom, I need you to read Luke chapter 23, verse 32 through 43. Okay, Stephanie. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 28. But I say to you... 
But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Love your enemies. What was that last line? Pray for those who spitefully use you. Bless. First Peter, chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. Now I said that the text is not asking us to do anything that Jesus himself hasn't already displayed for us in real time. So go ahead, uh, Kendall, stand up and read this one out loud for us, please. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Amen. For to this you were called. Did you hear it? It's the line that Peter likes to use. For to this you were called. And then he says, Jesus did this. Therefore, you are required to do such. Last one, Luke chapter 23, verse 32 through 43. Uh, did Brent disappear? Forget that you were going to read this. We got one more, Brent. Sorry. Make him get his steps in today. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an ins inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not fear, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Did you guys catch it? Two blessings. Two blessings. In the midst of being reviled and threatened. In the midst of being crushed and bruised for our iniquity. Two blessings. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And one of the greatest blessings that could ever be shared from God to man. Today. Today, you will be with me in paradise. There's no better news. In one moment, if you read Matthew and Mark's gospel, the same thief who is told he will be in paradise, he's blaspheming Jesus to his face. And in the next moment, he's asking for forgiveness because he recognizes that Jesus is who he says he is. And in that moment, the grace of God abounds where sin abounds, but grace abounds all the more. This is the good news of the gospel. Yeah. Joel Green notes that, the, that love, 
Love for God and love for humanity equates in foregoing the luxury of spiteful vengeance or calculated retaliation. It's a message for America. It is. Look, I'm an ex-soldier. I'm a gun owner. I'm an advocate of the Second Amendment. I want free speech, but this is a message for America. Do we worship the Constitution or do we submit to the text? Let's get real. A document that I'm absolutely thankful for that was offered by Deus is second nature to those who are inspired by the Spirit of God. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Non-retaliatory behavior on display in the life of Christ. You want to be like Jesus? Try non-retaliation on for size. And there's a mirror right here right now. Trust me. I'm looking at it and I'm saying, I don't know if I can do it. Do we have what it takes to follow in his footsteps? Craig Lombard says, man, it's hard enough at times to live in harmony with fellow believers, let alone a non-believer or a group of non-believers whose actions against us may tempt us to usurp God's role as the only just judge. And I agree, it can be difficult. Sometimes I want to be like, God, where are you? If I were on the throne, this is what I would be doing. And he's like, shut up, you worm. You're dust. You know nothing. And I start to go through the text of Job. Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? Mm. Where? On a practical level, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 requires something very difficult. There are some men in this room who need to hear this. We're rough with our lives. We're unsympathetic. We lack love and compassion. We are prideful and we pursue our own good over the good of them. And we need to hear this. On a practical level, this sounds difficult, I know. But difficult is far from impossible, gentlemen. Yeah. Difficult is far from impossible. Amen. This is not a pull yourself up by the bootstrap. This is a walk in the Spirit if He dwells in you. Yes. Keep in step with the Spirit. Display the fruit of the Spirit. Or do us a favor and stop claiming to be a spirit-filled Christian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's it! Mm -hmm. Don't tarnish the name of the Savior for your own selfish pleasures. Yeah. <laughs> In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. A proper response goes way beyond answering insult with a simple word of praise. It involves prayer for those who abuse us. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This prayer for those who abuse us, whether it's verbally, emotionally, physically, or sexually, this prayer for those who abuse us, it shows the hope that God himself might endow them with the benefits of salvation no differently than he has endowed us. Amen. And our ability to pray for those who curse us and for those who abuse us, that comes from God too. Amen. At the end of verse 9, Peter points out that a response of blessing instead of cursing will result in our inherent blessing from God. 
If we have the desire to be called sons of God, do you have the desire to be called a son of God? Yes. It is our responsibility to pursue peace. And I can't think of a better strategy than blessing those who curse us. Amen. Yeah. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? For every desires to love life and see good old days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Well, some people, I'm not saying anyone in this room, but some people like to make the accusation that Peter is in the business of proof texting the Hebrew scriptures in an attempt to validate his position. However, scholars like Job's and Kistmaker and Gopelt have argued rather persuasively. Can you explain what proof texting is? Proof texting would be like Peter just snatching some random text in the Old Testament and saying, here, this is how you know my teaching is good because the Old Testament says this. Right. As if he's taking something out of context to buttress his teaching. That's what a proof text would be. And Peter is not doing that here. Thank you, Art. Now we know that he's not doing this here because credible scholars like Job's and Kistmaker and Gopelt have argued persuasively from the text that he's not in the business of proof texting. And it's, it's especially true in regard to his use of Psalm 34. Karen Jobes, in her, in her commentary that I'm reading, she does a beautiful job of showing how uh, Psalm 34 is weaved throughout the entire length of 1 Peter. It is like fundamental in almost everything that Peter says. Now Thomas Schreiner notes that Psalm 34 is focused on both suffering and the Lord's deliverance of those who are afflicted. Now we talked about it this morning. Affliction, local opposition, and suffering, these are the very things that produced this letter. So both Psalm 34 and 1 Peter seem to be birthed out of similar circumstances which means that this psalm was not selected arbitrarily by our author. Mm -hmm. He selected it with purpose, mm -hmm. with intention. Peter supports the instructions of his household code, the entirety of his household code, with this citation from the Psalter. The passage fits the context of 1 Peter rather well, since the restraining of the tongue and doing good is the backbone of Peter's hustafel, his household code, his instructions to those in the Greco-Roman household. If we, the church, have a desire to fulfill a calling as a light to the nations, then we must first keep our tongue from evil and our lips from speaking deceit. Second, we must turn away from evil and do good. And third, we must actively pursue peace. Peter's five adjectives are non-negotiable, so it goes for the three commands here. A point of agreement between both the psalmist and the apostle Peter. Something that becomes very clear in Peter's next citation. Can you guys read this out loud as we prepare to close? For the eyes of the Lord are righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This passage is a clear reminder. It's a clear reminder that the Lord sovereignly decided to enter into covenant relationship with his most prized possession. He sets the terms. We simply respond in one of two ways. Obedience or rebellion. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but when I read verse 12, I hear the echoes of Deuteronomy 
I have set before you today life and what is good, death and what is evil. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you may have it, that you and your offspring may live. Look, guys, God has always been up front with us. He's never been deceptive about anything. He doesn't skirt the issue. He's very direct and he's very clear. He watches over the righteous. He exercises, act, he exercises active care over the obedient. He is alert to the prayers of those who seek peace. However, his judgment will be poured out against those who do evil. That's a fact. If you are not in Christ on the day of judgment, when you want and when you need God most, he will give you the thing that you wanted, not him. Amen. Unless you are in Christ through faith in his finished work. We can't be mad at God if he gives us what we want. Peter's citation of Psalm 34 has the effect of instilling the fear of the Lord in the reader. With its concluding reminder that the Lord's face is set against anyone who makes a practice of doing evil. Thus the Christian is compelled to pursue good. Saints, we've been given every reason to seek peace. I can't argue it any better. My argument is grounded in the word of God. I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm asking you to meditate on it. And if you find that the Spirit leads you that it is true, submit to being a peace seeker and a peace keeper. Not only have we been given reason to seek peace, but we've been given example after example that it's actually possible. Listen up. We have a lot to learn from the marginalized in society. I find it very interesting that Peter doesn't write in his letter highlighting those who had power. He writes highlighting those who had the least amount of social clout. Slaves and wives. Yeah. Lowest yeah. caste, yeah. lowest class. Amen. We stand to learn a lot from the life of the faithful slave and the faithful wife. The slave who must submit to the unjust master. The wife who is married to the non-believer. And the wordless witness that Peter believes can win him to the Lord. Are we willing to submit, church? Are we willing to responsibly occupy our roles in society without compromising our positions in Christ so that the gospel can continue to go out and the kingdom can be built? That's the question. And you know what the greatest sign of that is? Love. And you know what love produces? Unity. And you know what unity produces? Sympathy. You know what sympathy produces? Tenderheartedness. You know what tenderheartedness springs from? Humility. Five adjectives that Peter tells us are non-negotiable for the Christian. We cannot argue our way out of these. In Christ, this is the goal. Amen? Amen. Alright. Father, thank you for this day. I pray, Lord, that you would continue uh, 
to give us words that we would have an ongoing dialogue about what it is that we learned today. Not just with those who are here and are present, but with those who aren't here, with family members and friends, that we would share our desire to be peacemakers with them and the reasons for wanting to be peacemakers. That it would create gospel opportunities. That it would bring people to faith. I pray God that our friends and, and our family members and even those that consider us to be the enemy, that they would give us a chance to speak the good news of the gospel to them and that we would take advantage and capitalize on it for your glory. Seeing everyone as the mission field who doesn't have faith in God, I pray that you would bind this church in unity of mind. That we would be humble. That we would have sympathy for one another. That we would be tender-hearted. And that all of it would function from pure brotherly love. Bless this day, Lord, as we fellowship with one another. And as we leave here, keep us safe. In Jesus' name. Amen.